magnificent. How beautiful that. Melody and what a beautiful voice. Thank you very, very much. Heard about three men that were going to be executed. One was a Frenchman. The other was a Japanese, and the third one was an American. They gave them one last wish each. Frenchman said, well, before I'm executed, I want to hear just once more the Marseillaise, a great national anthem of the French Republic. Japanese man said, well, just once more before I die, I, I want to hear one more lecture on the efficiency of Japanese management. The American said, well, before I die, my last request is this. I want to be shot before the man from Japan because I don't think I can hear one more lecture on the, <laughs> the efficiency of Japanese management. <laughs> you know, stress comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes and all, under all kinds of circumstances, doesn't it? I read uh, an article you may have read a few uh, weeks ago, a few months ago. Now, well, it was November of last year. The attack of Monday blues can kill, a heart study warns. Here's another reason to hate Mondays, the article says, an Associated Press article. The risk of a heart attack may be as much as 50% greater than on any other day. Heart attacks, as we know, are the number one killer in the United States and other industrialized countries. Sunday was the safest, with 12% of all heart attacks, or 50% less than on Mondays. Monday's risk was 40% higher overall compared with the rest of the week. This doctor said that if the findings hold up, they may suggest the importance of being sure to take such heart-protecting medicines as aspirin and beta blockers on Monday morning. Well, now, if your doctor prescribes that treatment, that for you, that is fine and dandy, and I, I encourage you to follow his instructions. It, it does say something to me about uh, you're safer here than you're going to be tomorrow. <laughs> you're better off here right now than you're going to be tomorrow in terms of the potential for a heart attack. But it does say something else to me at a deeper level, and that is something can be prolonged past what happens here today that ought to help preempt and prevent heart attacks in the future. Something better than beta blockers and aspirin. Some attitudinal adjustments that will give us a different attitude about our Mondays because of what's happened to us on our Sundays. Now, I realize in common parlance, Sunday is included as part of the weekend. When people talk about the weekend in their mind and in their planning, they consider 
Sunday as part of the weekend. But Sunday is not a part of the weekend. Sunday is the first day of the week. The week ended at midnight last night. The new day, Sunday, the new week began at 12.01. Today is the first day of what can be a better life for you, and it is Resurrection Day, which is why Christians worship on Sunday rather than on Saturday, because Sunday is a symbol of the triumph over trouble. Sunday is a symbol of the triumph of God over the worst that the world can provide on all of its Blue Mondays combined. Sunday is Resurrection Day. Sunday is Resurrection Day when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the power of God to give new life to us, not just on Sunday, but on every day of every week for the rest of our lives throughout eternity. Something can happen to you today if you have never experienced the power of the resurrected Christ in your life. Something can happen to you today on this Sunday that can forever change your Mondays and your Tuesdays and your Wednesdays. This incomparable power of God to take life and resurrect it. Take all of the interruptions and the changes and the frustrations and the failures and the troubles of all of our yesterdays and put them in the crucible of the cross and implement them with the power of the resurrection and make all things work together for good to those who love God. Does it work in life? Does it work in people's lives like yours and mine? Well, let me introduce you to two. You probably know one better than the other. Some of you are familiar with both of them. One is from the New Testament, and the other is from the Old Testament. Two individuals whose lives were interrupted confused, compounded, frustrated, complicated by events over which they had no control, over some Mondays at their worst. One was the man that I've read from already and I'll come back to in a few moments. His name was Paul. Very religious man, very conscientious man, so conscientious about his religion, he was dedicated to killing people who disagreed with him. Brilliant. Highly educated. Refined man. Who came to know the power of the resurrected Christ in his life. And it changed his life. And he devoted the rest of his life to trying to communicate the message of Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection to the ends of the earth. He wanted to go everywhere and anywhere to tell people about Jesus. What a remarkable man. Daniel Borston just retired as uh, the curator and the uh, director of the National Archives. 
one of the most brilliant men in America. He's written some marvelous books. I've read one, The Discoverers, uh, and he has another one that's, uh, that has just come, uh, come out on the market. But I read an article by Daniel Borston who said that there were 15 events in the last 2,000 years that were history's hidden points of power. The 15 greatest events in the last 2,000 years. This by Daniel Borston, an academician, intellect, director of the National Archives, and the number one event in his estimation and in his article, the number one event was the conversion of the Apostle Paul. That the conversion of that man and the works that he did and the works that he wrote had more to do with transforming the last 2,000 years than any other human individual. He was not including people who are looked upon as divine and worshiped. He's talking about people like you and I who have made a difference in our world, and he said the greatest difference maker in the last 2,000 years was the Apostle Paul. And here he is in prison for doing good. Here he is in prison for telling people about Jesus Christ. Here he is in prison for telling people that their Blue Mondays can be changed by a resurrected Sunday and the power that is imparted through it by Jesus Christ. The other man in the Old Testament is a man by the name of Joseph. The 11th son of Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Joseph was number 11. His brothers were off, older brothers were off working together, and Jacob wanted to send a message to his brothers, to his sons. And so he got Joseph, who was still young, at the time 17, he was still at home, and Jacob sent his young son Joseph to go tell the older brothers a message from their father. Joseph had this beautiful coat that had been given to him. His mother had made it. His mother and father had given it to him. Joseph's coat of many colors. And I imagine all of my kids who were down here this morning in our little children's service uh, know that story. If they don't, I'm going to refresh their mind. And by the way, we're going to do this periodically from time to time, so I want to encourage you to always be here, for you parents to always have your children here for Sunday school and for the times that we share together in worship Sunday by Sunday and these special times that we'll have together in these children's services. By the way, we're going to have something extra special next Sunday that relates to children and the children's ministries of this church. How many of you know about Joseph and his coat of many colors? Oh, his, what's that musical you all sang, the Joseph and his Technicolor? Dream coat. Dream coat, that was it. Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat. Well, he had this big bright coat on, Gary DeLon of the Old Testament. <laughs> and his brothers were jealous of him. And when he got there, they decided to kill him. And uh, one of them intervened and said, no, uh, let's don't kill him. Let's, let's just hide him and sell him into slavery. But they took his coat and they covered it with blood and sent it back to the father, Jacob, so that Jacob would think that his son Joseph was dead. 
So they threw Joseph in a pit, and some Midianite travelers came along, and they sold Joseph to these people as a slave, and Joseph was taken to Egypt. And there he was sold to a man by the name of Potiphar, who was an official in the Egyptian empire. And he proved to be such a successful servant that Potiphar made him in charge of all of his personal affairs. Potiphar's wife took a liking to Joseph and tried to seduce him, but he refused that seduction. And she was so outraged by his refusal that she accused him falsely of trying to sexually molest her. And Joseph, innocent, was thrown into prison. Every now and then when I hear someone say, well, where there's smoke, there's fire, that is often true, but that's not always true. Listen, there was some smoke down at Potiphar's house, but there was no fire. Injustice was done to Joseph. Thrown into prison for two years. But he proved to be so successful and so cooperative that the jailer put him in charge of all the prisoners. Joseph had a remarkable ability to interpret dreams. Very intelligent, sensitive, perceptive individual. The king began to have these strange dreams, and the word had gotten around about Joseph's capacities and abilities, so he was sent to the king to interpret the dream. And Joseph said, the dream is this, your majesty. Going, there's going to be seven years of plenty and will be followed by seven years of want. There's going to be seven years of feast and it will be followed by seven years of famine. And so the king put Joseph in charge of, of collecting the food during the time of plenty to prepare for the time of need. He was so successful at that that when the famine came as predicted in seven years, the Egyptians had enough grain to survive the seven years and even to share it with other people and all because of the genius of Joseph who was made prime minister of Egypt. And because of that, at 30 years of age, he began that ministry from the time he was 17 until he was 30. For 13 years, he was a slave and then became a prime minister, not only saved the people in Egypt, but his brothers came, and you know that. If you don't, I urge you to read it in the book of Genesis, that marvelous dramatic story of how the brothers came, and Joseph was able to save his brothers, and his father and he were reunited, and Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and Ephraim and Manasseh and Joseph's brothers became the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. My, how God can take interruptions and troubles and problems and difficulties and change those and make them creative, new possibilities for power. Now, if God can do that with Joseph, and he did, and if God can do that with Paul, and he did, God can do that with you, and he can do that with me. How did they do it? How did they do it? Well, they did it by being able to cope. They were able to cope. Now, the reason I'm using that word is because it's often used as a, as a kind of a, a, a synonym for resignation. Well, you just kind of hang on and grit your teeth, and maybe you can cope with the problem. No, the word really is, would properly use a very positive word, and that's what I want to talk about. I read about an organization, COPE is the acronym for this organization, which means 
change of pace experiences. Change of pace experiences. It's an organization that provides what they call great weekends of expectation for parents of terminally ill children. These parents are dealing day in and day out, week in and week out, with that tremendous burden and responsibility of caring for terminally ill children. These people in the organization called COPE provide them periodically with weekends of expectation, of new experiences. The change of pace experiences. What God wants to do in your life and mine is change our pace, our priorities, our principles, our practices, so that we're not able to just get by, but to creatively use the experiences that happen to us in a way that will be a blessing to us and through us a blessing to the world. Our attitudes, our attitudes create the environment in which we live most of the time. Our attitudes become self-fulfilling prophecies. Job said in the second chapter early on, what I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness, no rest, only turmoil. Job was thinking negatively. Job was fearing, and so what he feared came to pass. Job was filled with dread. What he dreaded happened to him. He had no peace, no quietness, no rest, only turmoil. Our attitudes create the environment within which we live. That's why Mondays can be made different if Sunday is a resurrection experience. If Sunday is a positive, powerful experience of the renewal of our hearts and lives and minds. That's why I believe it's so important for church to be positive. We live in a negative world. We live surrounded by negative news. About 90% of what we think most of the time is negative. Just comes natural to us. And along comes God to interrupt that negative, destructive thinking that creates the very thing it fears and brings to pass the very thing it dreads. The psalmist wrote, a cheerful heart is good medicine. Long before Norman Cousins came on the scene, the writer of the book of Proverbs told us the same truth. The best medicine you can give yourself is a good spirit, a happy spirit, a positive spirit, a spirit full of, full of prayer and praise and hope and love. A cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. We come at it from the other direction. We think that, ah, 
have a crushed spirit because I've hurt. We begin with outside and work toward our attitudes. God begins with our attitudes and works out toward life around us. That's why I want to say a personal word to young parents here in church today with your children. Many of them were up here just a few moments ago. I want to say a word to you about how important it is for your children to have a Sunday experience of faith and love and hope, not just periodically, not just when it's convenient, but that Sunday by Sunday, they'll be in Sunday school and they will be in church where their young lives will be touched by a positive spirit of love and hope and grace, where they will be able to cope with the Mondays, their Mondays now and all of the Mondays of life that stretch before them. Listen. If you let convenience control your practice regarding Sunday, if convenience, your convenience, takes precedence over commitment, don't be surprised if your children adopt the same practice. Well, we'll go to church today if we feel like it. We'll stay for Sunday school today if we feel like it. We'll stay for church if it's convenient. We'll make important decisions on the basis of how we feel. Do you want them to make decisions in life on the basis of how they feel? About sex? About drugs? You set the pattern. Life imitates home. Heard about a little boy who came home from school and his dad said, well, how'd you do today, son? He said, well, <laughs> I got a whipping. He said, you got a whipping? What'd you get a whipping for? Old boy said, well, do you remember yesterday when I asked you how much a million dollars was? Yeah, I remember. Little boy said, well, a hell of a lot's not the right answer. Don't be surprised if your children practice in public what they hear in private. These men that I'm talking about this morning, Joseph and Paul, were men of principle. They changed the pace. They changed the principles by which they lived. 
and so can you and so can I. So must we, not only for our sake and for the Mondays we face, but for the sake of our children and the Mondays they face. Finally, we're able to handle Monday if we will see that the troubles that come into our lives have a purpose far beyond the moment and far beyond anything that you and I can envision. One of my favorite verses of Scripture is Hosea 2.15, where God says, I will turn your valley of trouble into a door of hope. Hope's a big word today, properly so. Hope Arkansas is on the map. We'll be hearing a lot about hope in the next three or four days. Wonderful. Marvelous word. Not invented in Arkansas, not invented in America, and not invented by the president-elect, invented by God, the power of hope. I will turn your valley of troubles into a door of hope. Life can be energized by trouble. We, we've been hearing a lot in the last few days about the aquifer, as we rightly should. Been voting on people. They're going to manage the water. How is the aquifer recharged? Not by sunny summer days. The aquifer is recharged by storms, by downpours of rain that nature takes, purifies and preserves, and makes this city live. God can take your valley of trouble and turn it into an aquifer of hope. Will water and refresh your life through the hot, dreary Mondays of everyday existence. One of my favorite stories is about the oyster. Here's an oyster nestled in this bed of oysters. And all of a sudden, because of some little opening in the side of that oyster, a little sand, a little foreign substance gets into that oyster, and it hurts the oyster. He doesn't want that sand in his life. And his first response to the invasion is rebellion. Why me? All these other oysters here. Why me? What did I do wrong? Where did I sin? This little speck of sand scuffling me and it hurts. It hurts the oyster like a little speck of dirt will hurt your eye. You fell against it. You resist it. You try to reject it. 
We, we try to handle that in a lot of different ways. We try to pretend that it's not there. It's not there. We're just crying all the time. But it's not there. Well, everything's fine. Just pretend that it's not there. No, you can't do that. These men didn't pretend they were not in jail. They didn't, they didn't pretend they didn't have troubles. The little boy's walking down the street and ran into this older woman, and he looked kind of sad, and the woman said, uh, what's wrong? And he said, well, my grandfather is sick. And the lady said, oh, no, 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 he's not sick. He just thinks he's sick. Well, the doctor, I don't care what the doctor says. He, he just thinks he's sick. It's just all in his mind. Three or four days later, he's going down the street again, ran into this woman. And she said, how's your grandfather now that you took my advice to him? And, she, and he said, well, we're burying him today. He thinks he's dead. <laughs> no, it is real. That speck of dirt, that trouble, that problem, that difficulty in your life is real. And to try to pretend it's not there is not the solution to it. To rebel against it and to feel like poor, pitiful me, why me? Or to resist it, what can you do? You can do what the oyster does. You can renew life around it. And that's what happens in that oyster. It starts putting this milky substance around that little speck, and it keeps multiplying that little milky substance over and over and over, and it hardens. And you know what it becomes, because some of you have them on this morning. It becomes a pearl. A pearl is nothing but beauty wrapped around trouble. A pearl is beauty wrapped around trouble. And someday, when you and I go to be with the Lord and we enter the heavenly city as described in the 21st chapter of the book of the Revelation, there are 12 gates, four on each side, 12 gates, and every single gate is a single pearl. You are going to enter heaven through doors of trouble that have been surrounded by the grace of God and the love of God, and you'll come through those doors that will open because God has brought you through trouble and pain, and problems, and will enter the holy city triumphant over all the troubles of the past. Jesus is our elder brother. He is the first fruits of those that come to know the Lord. He is our great pearl of great price. And he'll take your life, your interruptions, your problems, your difficulties, your troubles, and wrap his grace around them and make you a Joseph, a Paul, a powerful, positive person that will make a difference in our world. Trust the Lord. Be a part of his church. Be involved in it. Be faithful to it. Be loyal. Be dependable. Be consistent.
Begin today by aligning yourself with the people of God and rededication of your life if God so impresses you. Recommit your life and your family and your time and your money and your efforts, everything that you are, to the will of God and the work of God in the world. And life will become a pearl-like experience for you. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. I'll be here to greet you and welcome you as you come to be a part of the life and fellowship of this church, to come in rededication of your life, or to come trusting Christ as your Savior. Let's stand, let's sing our invitation, and I'll be here to greet you as you come. <laughs>